Well, Father, we, we come and we applaud you because you're an altogether good Father, an amazing God. And so we want to come and say thank you that you've made a way to redeem wretched, broken, fallen sinners like me through your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for defeating our greatest enemy, death, removing fear and the sting of death and defeating sin once and for all through your son, Jesus Christ. So I come today, we gather today as incredibly needy people, so many needs in the room, so much pain and hurt and anxiety and stress and worry. And so I ask that you would meet with us, absorb that, take that from us as we repent so that we might look at your word with hope and joy and life and be transformed in the image of your son. And so I admit again today, I've got nothing to offer your body. If you don't give it to me, I can't give it to them. And so I want to ask you to fill me with your spirit to serve and support and strengthen and feed your sheep that you might be glorified uh, through this group of amazing, amazing believers that you've put together. Father, would you, would you cause us and allow us to shine as a light in a dark world? Would you continue that work in us and reach more people, bring more people into your kingdom for your glory, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Welcome as you're being seated. I want to start by welcoming guests, visitors, first-timers. You've never been here before. So glad you're here. This is Hillside Fellowship. Uh, we believe Jesus changes everything. He starts by changing us. What sin does is it gets us to focus out there, God, why won't God change that? He says, I, I super duper want to, but I want to start by changing you. And I can guarantee you today, if you submit to Jesus, he'll start that work inside of you. I'm not just a, a spokesman for the gospel. I've been changed by the gospel. My name's Dave. I'm a new creation in Christ, and I happen to be a recovering addict and alcoholic. And so Jesus is doing a work in me, and I want to invite you, all cards on the table. I don't want your money. I would like your mind for about 38 minutes because I want to persuade you that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is actively changing everything, and that we as a body aren't ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation. And so those are all my cards on the table, and I really would like your mind just for a little while. Now... To the regulars, uh, you're here, I see you, I love you, I'm so grateful you're here. I still need about 68 of you to go to Saturday night service. No pressure, none. I'm just planting seeds. We have a lot of fun, free dinner, we hang out, and I'd love to see you. That way we can even out all the services, uh, because I don't know where we'd put a fourth service. Anybody wanna come to a Friday night service? Yeah. One. Me and Charlie all hang out, it'll be awesome. Was that you, Charlie? Whatever. Hey, we've been walking through the book of Genesis, looking at Jesus, the good news of Jesus through Genesis. Charlie, if you showed up, I didn't mean to be dismissive. I would be here. You and I would hang out, and I'd be like, Rrr. Listen, I chipped a tooth, and, and I've been whistling. And so if I whistle, just let it go. It's a dumb and dumber thing. It caught me off guard three times this morning already. And so I find myself being a little bit cautious about it. So if I whistle, just be like, yeah, we heard you. Now, we have been walking through Genesis and looking at the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ in Genesis. Genesis 42, it's actually 42, 43, 44, 45, and 46. It's one narratival story. But I'm going to show you today 
our God's incredible. Whatever suffering, brokenness, pain that you're facing today, our God has a plan in it, and I, I, want, you to, I want you to see it. Let me read Genesis chapter 42 to you. It'll take about three and a half minutes, but it'll, it'll be worth it. John, you all right? Everything good? I saw you talking. I was like, what? I'm missing something. I want to be in on that conversation. My son's astounding. How fun? And they live with me, and they said that. Get, that's on tape. You guys said that. That's going to be legit. You guys are more fun than a parent could imagine. Let, no, they truly are. Watch this. Genesis chapter 42. God says, Moses writes this. Now Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt. And Jacob said to his sons, why are you staring at one another? He said, behold, I've heard that there's grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy for us from that place so that we may live and not die. Well, then 10 brothers of Joseph went down to buy grain from Egypt, but Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers, for he said, I am afraid that harm may befall him. So the sons of Israel came to buy grain among those who were coming, for the famine was in the land of Canaan also. Now Joseph was the ruler over the land, and he was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. When Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he disguised himself, and he spoke harshly. And he said to them, where have you come from? And they said, from the land of Canaan. We've come to buy food. But Joseph had recognized his brothers, although they did not recognize him. Joseph remembered the dreams which he, had about, which he had about them and said to them, you are spies. You have come to look at the undefended parts of our land. Then they said to him, no, my Lord, but your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. <laughs> You're, whatever. Your servants are not spies. Yet he said to them, no, but you've come to look at the undefended parts of our land. But they said, your servants are 12 brothers in all, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is with our father today, and one is no longer alive. Joseph said to them, it is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you'll be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not grow, go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you that he may get your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested, whether there is truth in you. But if not, by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. So he put them all together in prison for three days. Now Joseph said to them on the third day, do this and live, for I fear God. If you're honest men, let one of your brothers be confined in your prison. But as for the rest of you, go. Carry grain for the famine of your household. Get your, get your family's food. Verse 20, and bring your youngest brother to me so that your words may be verified and you will not die. And they did so. Verse 21, they said to one another, truly we are guilty concerning our brother because we saw the distress of his soul when he pleaded with us, yet we would not listen. Therefore, this distress has come, come upon us. Reuben answered them, saying, did I not tell you all, do not sin against the boy? And you would not listen. Now comes the reckoning for his blood. 
They did not know, however, that Joseph understood, for there was an interpreter between them. He turned away from them and he wept. But when he returned to them and spoke to them, he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. Then Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to restore every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. And thus it was done for them. So they loaded their donkeys with grain and departed from there. And as one of them opened their his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money, and behold, it was, in, it was in the mouth of his sack. Then he said to his brothers, my money's been returned, and behold, it's even in my sack. And their hearts sank. Then they turned trembling to one another, saying, what is this that God has done to us? Well, when they came to their father Jacob in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man, the Lord of the land, he spoke harshly with us and took us for spies of the country. But we said to him, we are honest men. We are not spies. We are 12 brothers, sons of our father. One is no longer alive, and the youngest is with our father today in the land of Canaan. The man, the Lord of the land, said to us, by this I will know that you're honest man. Leave one of your brothers with me. Take the grain for the famine of your household and go But bring your youngest brother to me that I might know that you are not spies but honest men. I will give your brother to you and you may trade in the land. Well, now it came about while they were emptying their sacks that behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw the bundles of money, they were dismayed. Their father Jacob said to them, you have bereaved me of my, chi- my children. Joseph is m- no more. Simeon is no more. And you would take Benjamin. All these things are against me. Then Reuben spoke to his father, saying, You may put my two sons to death if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my care, and I will return him to you. But Jacob said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he alone is left. If harm should befall him on the journey you are taking, then you will bring my gray hair down to Sheol in sorrow. 38 verses. What in the world are we going to do with this in 21 minutes? Um, You've got to ask. We've got to ask. We've got to ask the question, what in the world is God doing in, in this text that I could possibly apply to my life? I mean, I know on the macro narrative, he's moving the, the story of history, the redemptive story from, from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to Judah, clear down to Jesus to save the world. I know that. But what is he doing here? Let me give you a big picture and, and three or four hooks you can hang some thoughts on so that we can enjoy this together because this applies to everyone. If you read straight through the Bible, it took about 42 and a half hours and read from Genesis to Revelation 22, One of the big pictures about God that you would walk away with is this. God actually describes himself, defines himself. He says, call me Father, our Father who art in heaven. Hallowed be thy name. He's a good Father. He's a loving Father. And as a good, loving Father, Hebrews 12, he disciplines us. Not a lot of applause at that. You know, yay, God disciplines us. In English, we take the word dis- discipline to mean kind of punishment. God's hard on us, or he, he makes life difficult. Discipline in the Greek, paideia, just means tender training with teeth. 
So you give a child everything they need to know to develop and grow, and you put consequences and guidelines or guardrails. So it's tender training with teeth. He's, he's going to develop us. He's going to grow us because he's a good father. We're going to see that today. Now, small theological picture. You know the enemy's also a father. Jesus calls him the father of lies, and he doesn't want to develop you. He actually wants to devour you. And he's got a plan to devour you. He's got a sight set on you, and he knows how to devour people. I'll show you that today. Well, God is such a great father. He sends his son, Jesus. He so loved this world. He sends his son, Jesus, to live the life we couldn't, die the death we owed, be buried, conquer and defeat death so that he might give us eternal life. That is the gospel. If you're here and you don't know Jesus, Jesus offers eternal life so that in Jesus, we no longer have to say, goodbye, we say, I'll see you later, because we know Jesus is going to reunite us in Christ. The question comes from this text, what in the world is God doing here? How do I make sense of this cat and mouse game with Joseph? He's hiding himself. Is he just messing with his brothers? They were mean to him for a long 17 years, so now he's just being mean to them? No. Here's what I'm going to show you. Here's what God is doing here. And if you watch Dukes of Hazard, do you hear it? How many? Let's start over. How many of you watch Dukes of Hazard ever? Okay, total connection. Roscoe P. Coltrane was always in hot pursuit. Like he was, and he was all excited about. It. I'm in hot pursuit, always chasing the Duke boys, never catching them. You know, because Bo and Luke, they're quick, got the general lead. They were out of there. What is God doing here? I'll tell you, he is in hot pursuit. Let me frame it this way. Joseph was in the land and he had forgotten all the troubles of his family and past and he was fruitful. Do you remember that last week? Forgotten it and fruitful. But his brothers, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Dan, Gaddish, Garzebulin, Naphtali, and Asher, 10 of them, they're frozen in their sin. These 10 brothers don't know God. They have no relationship with God. In this text, you're going to see from chapter 42 to 46, God's in hot pursuit. He's going to make it really hard. Here's a general theme. He's going to make it hard for anyone to go to hell. Do you know that? He's going to make it really hard. He's going to put up high water. Even for my atheist friends, agnostic friends, and friends who don't like, follow, or want Jesus, he's going to make it hard for everyone to go to hell. He's going to put up high water crossings. How many of you go around the high water crossings, though? Seriously, Philip. Hmm. Sorry, bud. No, so many of us do. Every time it rains, I'm watching the news, and I'm like, oh, my goodness. God's going to put up high water crossings. In order to get to hell, you're going to have to reject creation. Just close your eyes, harden your heart, close your ears, deny reality, turn your back on God, resist God, reject God, refuse your conscience. You're going to have to numb everything inside. You're going to have to do this for decade upon decade. He's going to make it really hard. And he's going to make it hard on Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Dan, Gad, Ishakar, Zebulun, Naphtali, and Asher to walk away from him. Watch this. And know, please know, wherever you're at today, God's in hot pursuit. You see, Jacob was a failed father. 
We're going to see that in the text. And God's a faithful father that fills in the gaps. Isn't that, isn't that strengthening? For those of us, my kids are here. I even told my son, I think we talked about it last night, I feel like my life is one failure after another. My son looked at me and just said, well, Dad, we're, I guess we're too young. We don't see it, you know? And that was gracious. All of us function with parental guilt. Do you know that? We don't talk about it. Oh, my goodness. We'll blame it. We'll bury it. All of us function with parental guilt. We really fall into this realm of, of Jacob. We're failed fathers. And God's a faithful father who comes in, and he's in hot pursuit that's greater than my failure. Jacob fails, and God comes in and says, hey, let me make up for these gaps and let me show you how I move people from frozen in sin to forgiven and free in Christ. That's the movement we're going to see today. Frozen in sin to forgiven. And even better than forgiven, I'm free. My sin doesn't define me anymore. Watch. Let's start with frozen. Pull up verse 1. 15 minutes. There's no way I'm going to land the dismount on this. None. Will you forgive me? I'll ask, I'll ask for forgiveness early. But I'll make it as good as we can. Watch this. Verse 1. Sin will freeze you. It's like a freeze ray gun. Anybody play freeze tag growing up? Anybody? Did they play that back in the 40s and 50s? <laughs> Legit question. That's a genuine question. Well, I don't even know why that's funny. I'm... Did, they, did they play it in the 70s? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, we're all offended now. All right, I'm offended that you're offended, so we're all offended. Let's get into the Bible. Watch this. Freeze tag is fun unless it's for real, and sin plays freeze tag for real. It will freeze you. It will make you a slave. Jesus said, whoever sins is a slave of sin. Watch where the brother's at. Joseph, there it is, on a Joseph, Joseph, Joseph. Joseph is free. He's forgotten his past. But watch where his brothers are at. This is so nuanced. The economy of style in literature here is astounding. It's in one verse. Now, Jacob saw that there was grain where? In Egypt. This matters. So Jacob, daddy, was looking. He says, there's grain in Egypt. And Jacob said to his sons, why are you staring at one another? Is that not an odd verse? Even when you read it, you're like, oh, that's funny. It's ten dudes just staring at each other. Freeze tag is fun unless it's for real. These boys have kept a secret for 21 years. If you go back to Genesis chapter 37, they sold their brother to Ishmaelite traders who were on their way to... Egypt, 37, verse 25, 6, 7, and 8. They sold their brother. The last time they saw Joseph, they sold him. Joseph was saying, please don't do this. They sold him, and they sat down and had lunch. Said, we're done with that dreamer. Now, 21 years later, there's a famine in the land, and their dad says, hey, there's food in Egypt, and what do the brothers do as soon as they hear the E word? They freeze because they have had skeletons and sin and shame in the closet for 21 years. 
How do 10 dudes keep a lie for 21 years? It's astounding. I don't know how, but they did, and they had serious skeletons in the closet. But every single time that the E word came up, these guys froze. You see, the enemy knows how to freeze you in your sin. He will tell you your sin is too great, your shame is too great, you've been horrible, God will reject you, the people will reject you, your sin is too great to be forgiven, put it in the closet, lock it up, hide it up, put all of the skeletons in the closet, all of your sin in the closet, all of your shame in the closet, lock it up, and just move forward. Problem is you weren't made for sin, shame, and skeletons. Do you know that? They will literally devour you on the inside. They will silence you. They will strangle you. You will begin to suffer as they take over more and more and more of your life. They separate you from people. You can no longer speak freely because you're afraid the skeletons are going to come out. How many of you know that you have skeletons in your closet? How many of you are like me, and there's so many that you have them named? They're just lined up, and you're like, oh my goodness, this is astounding. You see, you will do something with those skeletons. Today, I want to invite you to kick that closet open, drag those corpses out, bring them into the light, because that's where they're healed. I didn't become an addict and alcoholic by accident. You see, years and years ago, my brother and I got in a fight. It's one morning about 7 a.m. I still remember it. I can still smell the smells of the house. I still see the bathroom because my brother and I got into a fight over a hair comb. Isn't that ridiculous? He had better hair than I did. It looked more like MacGyver's. Back then I had hair, though, and I was trying to spike it. I was trying to get it just right. But he had the comb, and I was in a hurry. And so I began to call him names and say things. And he was my friend. I don't talk about him much, but we grew up together. We rode my motorcycles together, built our first bomb together, and it was huge. <laughs> when it went off, we looked at each other and we're like, I can't believe we built that in mom and dad's house. It would have taken down the whole house. We had a lot of fun, but that morning I was in a bad mood. And I called him names that were just horrific. And I was like, whatever. We'll make up later. We'll probably fight tonight and have fun. We fought with knives, left scars, cut each other. Super fun. <laughs> that night he died. And I was left carrying a whole series of skeletons because all of a sudden every name, every name that I called them would come up. Every vile, hateful thing. Because when, you, when your friend dies and there's not forgiveness and reconciliation, that weight bears down on you. And the only thing that helped me was alcohol and pills. Because every anniversary, every birthday, I would have to numb it. I'd have to stop it. This is the enemy's tactic to freeze you. That sin, that shame, to say never, ever, ever let it out. The question in the text, the boys are frozen now. Verse one, they're staring at each other. How will God move them from frozen to forgiven and free. That's the movement. Watch. I'm going to tell you, God has got a huge toolbox. If you're here today, he's in hot pursuit, yo. And he's got a huge toolbox to set you free. 
He's got a huge toolbox to kick open the closet, drag the corpses out, bring them into the light, and set you free. You may not like the tools, but watch. He begins to use them through Joseph on his brothers. Watch the first one. We'll go verse two. God's going to use suffering. He'll use starvation. He'll use suffering. He'll use struggle to set us free. Watch verse two. Jacob said, behold, I've heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us from that place so that we may live and not what? They were not going to face their sin, their shame, and their skeletons in their closet unless there was a life and death situation, unless there was suffering, unless there was suffering so great that where they are was so painful that they were willing to walk into the fear of dealing with the skeletons in the closet. This is often how God works in my life. I have no idea how I got to Texas, except the pain of where I was at was so great, I was willing to trust him with anything. Even Texas has to be better than this pain that I'm in. So I came down here. It's astounding. Y'all, this is where we're at. I was reading the internets this week. Got on the World Wide Web's. Do you know, and I'm going to test this, I want to see, it's called the atrophobia, fear of doctors. They, on the World Wide Web, I read that 80% of us avoid the doctor until the pain is so great that we have to go. Let me ask you, because I don't believe the internets. How many of you avoid the doctor until the pain is so great that you have to go? Honestly, honestly. Okay, about 62%. See, the internet's wrong. (laughs) But most of us do. We will avoid the discomfort. We'll avoid the doctor until the pain of where we're at is so great that we have to go. It's astounding. You see what God does to move them towards forgiveness and freedom? He brings a little bit of suffering, a little bit of pain to set them free, to say, come on, guys, let's go. Watch verses. So he starts with suffering. Watch verses six and seven. Then he moves to a little shock treatment. Watch this. It's not bad enough just with suffering. He'll move to shock treatment. Now, Joseph was the ruler over the land. He was the one who sold food to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. Watch verse seven. This is their first interaction. When Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he disguised himself to them. And he, do you see it there? He spoke what? Why is Joseph being mean, meany mean pants, mean face? Can't believe Joseph is being so harsh. That's what some commentators say. You read through it and you're like, well, Joseph clearly wasn't over his bitterness. No, Joseph had forgotten the past. He was free. He had forgotten it all. He's doing something else here. He says, sometimes our sin, our shame, and our skeletons are locked so tight behind that closet that God has to shock our systems. Sometimes he has to use hard words. And that's what Joseph does here. And before you say, well, Joseph is just being mean, he's being a jerk, and he shouldn't be a mean jerk. His brothers were harsh dudes. Please remember, his brothers were thugs, bullies, dictators, tyrants, 
Uh, Jacob had failed at parenting, and they were the bullies of the land of Canaan. They were so harsh. Remember, they sold their brother, sat down, ate, had a cold beer, and were like, at least we're done with the dreamer. They were harsh. Why does Joseph use harsh words here? Sometimes harsh words, hard words can break through hard hearts. Sometimes they can create a crack in the veneer. I just call it an intervention. Anybody ever had an intervention? No, don't raise your hand. Thank you for that honesty, though. <laughs> At my, when my friends have done interventions with me, they sit down, and guess what? They say hard words, hoping that those hard, truthful words can crack my hard heart. And watch, it works. Pull up verse 30. I'm jumping to the end of the chapter. Watch what works here. When, uh, th- this is the 10 brothers speaking to their dad when they bring the report back. They say, dad, the man, the Lord of the land, he was mean to us. He spoke harshly. This is what they remember because they were bullies. They were used to bullying everyone else. And I'll tell you what, when you, when you finally stand up to a bully and say no more, maybe pop him in the beak, Maybe. I did say maybe. (laughs) Potentially. You know the bully, the thug, the dictator, the tyrant will turn into a boo-boo baby? They they just do. They they act like they've been fouled. The brothers, finally, there's cracks in their veneer. Dad, the man, the lord of the land, he was mean to us. He spoke harshly. It stuck with them. Sometimes God will use suffering to get us to open the closet of sin, shame, guilt, and skeletons. Sometimes he shocks the system, uses hard words. Watch watch what comes next. We'll go 17, 18, 19. Not only does he use shock, he, he often uses solitude. Watch, 17. And this is where God really begins to move the hardened heart over to forgiven. Watch 17. You remember Joseph put them all in prison for three days. Now Joseph said... He said to them on the third day, do this and live for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers be confined in your prison. But as for the rest of you, go carry grain for the famine of your households and bring your youngest brother to me so that the words may be verified and you will not die. And they did so. Now watch the brothers have the conversation in prison. There's 10 of them. He's already spoken harshly to them. They've already suffered. 21, then they said to one another, don't miss these words, truly we are, don't downplay that. They've been hiding, they have been blaming, they've been burying their heads, and now after 21 years, they actually confess, we are guilty. That's big. That's dragging one of the skeletons out. That's walking in the light. That's confessing truth. That's owning truth. That's believing truth. We're guilty. It wasn't the dreamer's fault. We're guilty. But watch this, and this makes Joseph cry. We are guilty concerning our... Joseph's listening to this. They've never called him brother. They call him that dreamer that kid, that child. They've never called him brother. And now Joseph's listening and they say, we're guilty. 
of our brothers, of our brother, because we saw the distress of his soul when he pleaded with us, yet we would not listen. Therefore, this distress has come upon us. Sometimes God will use solitude to break through to us and get us to move from frozen to forgiven. You see, in America, we've got so much noise, so much to distract us, so much to divert our attention, so much we can do where we don't have to think about silencing the voices of the skeletons and the sin and the shame in our past. Oftentimes, that's why we move, we get busy. We're super busy. We're the busiest people ever. We're busy bees. And I think most of our busyness is just about burying our heads in the sand so we don't hear the voices of the sin, the shame. In America, we just call this solitude timeout. Anybody ever put their kid in timeout? One of you. Man, I've got books for you to read. There's great. You put the kid in timeout and you say, I want you to think about what you've done, right? And they don't have electronics. They don't have anything to distract them. Here, God used suffering to bring them to Egypt to face their sin, shame, and skeletons. He, he's uh, used solitude now to open their ears, open their hearts, and say, hey, We've got to unlock. We've got to let go of the sin and shame and skeletons. Watch what he uses next because it's somewhat astounding. I'm going to go verse 25 and 28, one and then the other. Watch. In 25, uh, then Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to restore every man's money in a sack and to give them provisions for the journey. And thus it was done for them. Not only, not only does God use suffering, not only does he shock the system, not only does he use solitude, but you know he also uses softness, kindness. Romans 2, 4, it's the kindness of God that leads to repentance. He actually loves you. He's not against you. Watch what Joseph does here. He, he says, fill up their bags with grain. Not only that, restore all their money to them. That's just being kind. Put them in the sack and, and give them provisions for their multiple day trip back to Canaan. Joseph is just being kind. Well, watch what their reaction is in verse 28. This is, this is amazing. Uh, in verse 28, one of the brothers opened up the sack and saw that there was money in it. And the, and the brother said to his other nine brothers, my money's been returned to me, and behold, it's even in my sack. And their hearts did what? Yeah, rut-row. And they turned trembling to one another. And this is astounding because it's the first time Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Dan, Gad, Ishkar, Zebulun, Naphtali, and Asher ever used God's name. They've never used God's name up to this point. They're lost as lost can be, sin, shame, skeletons in the closet. And now, now there's cracks in the wall. God's being kind to them, soft to them, but they get their money returned and they say, what is this that God has done to us? Is that not weird? You say you go buy a car, used car. You go down to San Antonio, you buy a car. You give them cash eight, nine, 10 grand, you drive home, you're showing your new car to your family, and you look in the glove box, and the dealer put all the cash back in there. What do you say? I think you would say, 
Praise God, this is a good day. I think this is a very good day, sweetie, and I think God's grace and favor have shown upon me. I think that's what you would say. Now, unless you've got a Jesus Changes Everything sticker or shirt on, then you say, I should probably take it back. But generally speaking, when something gets returned to you, you say, this is great. Unless you've got sin, shame, and skeletons in your closet, then you know that something's wrong. And God's kindness leads them to the point finally of saying, God's up to something and we're in trouble. They finally admit God is. And now they're looking at the blessing and the goodness saying, something's wrong. We know God is. God's brought this about. And if there's a God who sees, then there's a God who saw, and we're in trouble. We're in trouble. You see, you think you're keeping secrets. It's those secrets that are keeping you. If we choose not to deal with the past, we're choosing to ruin our future. Because it just bears on our conscience. They, they show up and they look at the softness, the kindness of God that's meant to lead to repentance and they, they say, what has God done to us? Now we've got to ask the question at this point, why this cat and mouse game? What is Joseph doing here, honestly? What is the point of Joseph testing them and trying? We're gonna see it next week in 43 and 44. He tests them more. What is Joseph doing here? Let me ask you a question. Let's put it in a different context. And this will actually expose your hearts, your personality types, and probably your political affiliations and persuasions. How many of you, if you or Joseph had all your Egyptian garb on and you saw your 10 brothers show up, you would have knocked your Egyptian garb off and said, hey guys, it's me. You're going to prison. You're fried. How many of you would fight for justice? You're like, that's right. Come on, one of you? I happen to know that 72% of you are packing heat, and if you were sitting there, you would pull it out and be like, yeah, what's up now? All of a sudden, we're all acting like pacifists, and it's very confusing to me. Let's try that again, because I happen to know a very high percentage of you are red meat-eating Republicans, Pro-death penalty, I'm just, I'm just calling it like it is. Sorry to my friends north of the border in Canada. We are. And over 72% of them are packing heat. How many of you in this scenario, your brothers have hurt, harmed, wounded, abused, and generally just tossed you to the side 21 years earlier? When they came, you would knock off your Egyptian garb and say, hey guys, it's me you're going down to prison with you. Honestly, it's just, there we go, hello. Hello, hello, hello. No shame, no shame. I, I've pondered that. Now, how many of you, if your brother showed up, would knock off your Egyptian garb and say, hey guys, it's me, you're forgiven, you're free, let's let bygones be bygones and just have Thanksgiving dinner together. You're, you're more persuaded that way. All right, you're like, I don't want anybody to think I'm a Democrat. You know, I don't know if that is it, it's, a it's not a test. It's not a test. It's just not. It's, some of us are more oriented towards truth. Fry them. Some, uh, some of us are more oriented towards grace. Forgive them. Do you know 
If Joseph would have fried them or forgiven them right off the bat, do you think they would have repented? Okay, 100% agreement there. They would have been like, either we got fried and we're mad at Joseph, or we got forgiven, forget about it, we're fine. You see, we've, uh, we've actually got medical terminology for this, what God is doing here. Adhesive capsulitis, anybody ever, you're not doctor, uh, frozen shoulder. Frozen shoulder, you've got a joint that gets frozen and you literally cannot move it. Now, what they have to do in, in medicine, with that, oftentimes they have, I mean, it is painful. How many of you have ever had a doctor say, ice and then heat, ice and heat? You need to ice it, you need to heat it. It's pretty standard, isn't it? You get the blood flowing. Do you know what God is doing here? Isn't cat and mouse, it's not a game. He's in hot pursuit and he knows it's gonna take truth and it's gonna take grace. It's gonna take love and it's gonna take truth. It's gonna take hot and cold, hot and cold. So he brings suffering, that's cold, it hurts. Then he brings grace and love and then he brings solitude and then brings softness. What is God doing? Has he lost his mind? No, he's a brilliant, perfect father who knows exactly how to break through to our hard hearts and win us over. And he knows it's gonna take decades and decades. And that's okay, he says, I'm not giving up. I'm in a hot pursuit. And I see and I know and I'm gonna kick down that door and I'm gonna drag out those skeletons, that sin and shame and allow Jesus to put them to death and forgive us. Watch this last one, just called his steadfastness. You say, Dave, God's been using ice, heat, ice, heat. But I'll tell you what, the family system hasn't changed at all. I try change, I'm, but the marriage hasn't changed, the family system hasn't changed, the community group hasn't changed. I'm just giving up. Don't give up yet. God's steadfast in his love. Watch 30, we'll go 36, 37, 38, and then I'll land the plane here. Their father, Jacob, said to them when they said, Dad, we've got to take Benjamin with us. Their father, Jacob, said to them, you have bereaved me of my children. And this is really odd. What a failed father. He's talking to his children. What he is saying is, you 10 are not my kids. I don't care about you. You've taken Joseph, and now you're threatening my idol, Benjamin. He'd made Benjamin Bubble Boy. You ever seen that movie, Bubble Boy? He'd made Benjamin Bubble Boy. Nothing's going to happen to Benjamin. All my life is wrapped up in Benjamin now because you've bereaved me of my, my children. Jo Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And you would take Benjamin. All these things are against me. Watch 37. Then Reuben spoke to his father saying, you may put my two sons to death if I do not bring Benjamin back to you. And I don't know how that helps anything. Dad, you can kill your grandkids if I don't bring... It's just horrible. I don't even like saying it. Dad, I've got a plan. You can kill your grandkids if I don't bring Benjamin back. That's a great plan. His kids are standing there. This is a mess. It's an epic continued mess. Uh, put him in my care and we'll return him to you. Verse 38, here's where we'll end. Jacob said, my son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, he alone is left. If harm should befall him on the journey you're on, or you're taking, then you will bring my gray, my gray hair down to Sheol in sorrow. So the brothers go through all of this, 
And guess what? The system doesn't change at all. You ever tried to make changes and the system doesn't change? You try and make changes, the marriage doesn't change. You try and make changes, community doesn't change. You try and make changes and you just reach the point of saying, I just want to give up. Doesn't matter. I can't bring about change. So we leave the skeletons, leave the shame. See, Jacob ends up being the one who refuses to change. The ruts are too deep. His idol's too big. He loves Benjamin. He's not letting go. Um, you, you, you need to know that God's a lot like an orthodontist. Anybody been to the orthodontist? My son taught me about this. We were talking about it on the way home. Was that last night, night before? What God does, he applies gentle pressure, but he applies it relentlessly over time. He's okay if the first decade things don't change. He continues to apply gentle pressure, but he applies it relentlessly. This is his hot pursuit. He will square away our spiritual teeth. It's gentle pressure, relentlessly applied. But remember, he's perfect at discipline. Tender training with consequences and teeth, but never more consequences than is absolutely needed to change the trajectory that you're on. It's very gentle pressure, relentlessly applied. You see, it's what he longs for. He longs for us to bring that sin, to bring that shame, to bring those skeletons into the light. Now, the enemy will tell you, your sin is too great, your sin is too big, your sin is too horrible. If your sin, your shame, and your skeletons are known, you'll be rejected. God will reject you. Your community will reject you. Keep those skeletons in the dark. Keep that sin hidden. Keep that shame hidden. You need to know the enemy is a liar. Our Savior, Jesus Christ, is greater than your sin, greater than your shame, greater than your skeletons. He's inviting you. Open the closet. Let the light in. Bring the skeletons out and receive forgiveness. Receive grace. Receive mercy. Receive forgiveness. And when you do, you'll move from frozen to forgiven. You see, I'm not, I don't care what your sin is. I've never met anybody worse than me, ever. And I've been alive for 40. Now I know it happens when you get old. You just forget. I think it's 46, but I'm pretty sure it's 47 and it could be 48. Doesn't matter. I've been alive a long time. And I've never met anybody worse than me. The enemy wants to convince you your sin is too great, your shame is too great, your skeletons are too great. I'm here to tell you Jesus Christ is greater than your guilt. Your Savior is greater than your shame. If you would kick open that closet door, bring that carcass into the light, you will be forgiven and move from frozen in sin to freedom in Christ. I don't care what your sin is. I really don't. I care that it's silencing you, separating you from community, shaming you, strangling you, and suffocating you. And it is time, because I love you, it's time to stand up and say, my sin, my shame, my skeletons no longer define me. My Savior does that, and he has called me his friend. He has called me forgiven. He has said I am 
free. He has said I'm part of his family. Today, today, you can open up that closet, bring that shame into the light. Even if you don't, I know that was a very forceful appeal. I'm pretty pumped about it. Even if you're here and you don't, you need to know he's in hot pursuit. He will not let you go. He won't let you go to hell easy. Some people will get there, broad is the road, and some people will fight their way there. But I want you to know he's in hot pursuit. He reached me in a meth house. He'll continue to pursue you because he loves you. And this is such grace for our families. Many of you have children who've gone off the rails. He's in hot pursuit. You can trust him with the one who's in hot pursuit. He loves you. If you're going to get to hell, you're going to do so over God's dead body. Literally. Do you not understand? That's why he sent his son Jesus to die in your place for your sin with his arms spread out saying, I love you. I don't care about your sin, your shame, your skeletons. That's why I'm dying to pay for all of that. If you're going to get to hell, you're going to do so over my dead body today, today. Open that door because I care that your sin is silencing you. It's time. This world needs to see Christians who are not frozen but are forgiven and free to say, the gospel's changed my life. The world needs to see that. I care that sin and shame is silencing you. We're going to have people up here to pray. You won't be rejected. God loves you. He loves you. And he longs for you to be free. Let's pray. Let's sing to him together. Father God, thank you so much for your word. It is beautiful. It is life-giving. It is true. It is light. And I pray now for those of us here, Father, that have sin and shame and skeletons in the closet, we're frozen. We're frozen by our sin. Would you, by your grace, free us up and move us because of what Jesus has done for us? Would you move us from frozen to that eyesight and that understanding of forgiven in Christ. And even further than that, free. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. This world needs to see a genuine picture in and through the body of Christ. So I pray you would do that in us. Would you set us free from that snare of the enemy? Set your children free for your glory, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.